Hi, and welcome back to The Resident Review. I'm Rosie Tillis, a Duke Plastic Surgery resident. And I'm Lily Mundy, one of the Duke Plastic Surgery chief residents. And today, this is part of our Back to Basics series. So we're gonna cover common topics and terminology in our field. And this episode is about wounds, healing, and skin and skin grafts. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Rosie. I'm super excited. Very excited. Awesome. So as Rosie mentioned, this is part of our Back to Basics series, and this is designed to help medical students, other learners, nursing students, PA students, anyone who's interested in plastic surgery and wants the terminology and sort of core knowledge to help them do the best in their clinical rotations. Let's first talk about wound healing. People use these terms primary intention or primary closure, secondary intention, and delayed primary closure. What does that mean? So primary closure, we'll start in order, I guess, which isn't really the intuitive order. Primary closure is when you actually bring the wound edges together primarily, and then you sew them together or attach them somehow. Um, Secondary closure is when you're leaving something to heal, we call it secondarily. So um, it heals kind of from the inside out and Then delayed primary closure is where you leave a wound kind of to start in secondary intention, and then you'll eventually close it. All of these have kind of some different effects and different reasons that you may do one versus the other. So primary closure is really good for like clean wounds, fresh wounds, um, and and it's, it happens within hours. That makes, that makes sense. So like when we close wounds or incisions primarily that we created in the OR, or if a patient say comes into the emergency room with a laceration, we wash things out and close Mm -hmm. it directly. That's closing something primarily secondary intentions. When we just let things heal on their own through contraction and epithelialization of the Mm -hmm. wound, like you mentioned, so a lot of times we, you know, might monitor someone has a smaller wound, there's no critical structures exposed. We allow that to heal mm-hmm. secondarily. Mm-hmm. And then, like you mentioned, delayed primary closure is when we're converting a subacute or a chronic wound into an acute wound by like sharply debriding it and then closing it primarily. And another thing that at least I think I got confused about maybe when I was still learning some of these terms is we use like primary intention or secondary intention. And then sometimes we say closure. Personally, I don't know a difference between the word intention or closure. I think we just tend to use them pretty interchangeably. So Mm -hmm. that's not something to get too hung up on. And then often when people say a chronic wound, then they're talking about a wound that hasn't healed for about three months. And all of this sort of just fits into the reconstructive ladder, which is something that we talked a little bit about in one of our previous podcasts, or at least talked about some of the concepts in terms of thinking about what the best flap is for a patient. For those of you who haven't heard of the reconstructive ladder before, This basically is just sort of a list of different options for closing wounds that patients may have. And it kind of goes from us as surgeons doing the least amount to us doing the most invasive things. So closing via secondary intention or primary closure, you know, wound vacuuming or doing skin grafts are going to be at the bottom. Whereas things like free tissue transfer or maybe even BCA are going to be at the top. And you'll often hear people talk about like a reconstructive elevator in addition to a reconstructive ladder, suggesting that you're not necessarily going to go through every one of the least invasive to most invasive methods of closure for every patient. You're just going to look at the wound, think about the patient, think about all the factors involved and pick what the most appropriate one. Right. So like, if you see somebody with exposed vessels, you're not going to try 
to you know, first do secondary intention. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So next we're going to get into the nitty gritty about skin. Skin has different layers. There's the epidermis, the dermis, and then there's a subdermal plexus, which has a lot of vessels that we rely on for perfusion of skin. And I don't know about you, but I do remember this saying for my steps, my step one studying California loves girls in string bikinis, which stands for the layers of the epidermis. So stratum corneum and then stratum lucidum, granulosum, spinosum, and then basalis. And that's from superficial to most deep. And the primary cell in the epidermis is going to be keratinocytes and the stratum basalis, which is at the deepest layer of the epidermis is going to have the active keratinocytes and the keratinocytes slowly become less and less viable. So when you get to the more superficial stratum lucidum and corneum, these, these keratinocytes are not viable at this Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. below the epidermis is the dermis. The layers of the dermis is the papillary dermis and the reticular dermis. And I always have a hard time remembering which one is in which order. I don't know about you, Rosie. (laughs) Yeah. My best way to remember this is to think that skin has a PR, like a public relations problem, (laughs) maybe because of the statement, California loves girls and strings, string bikinis is not the most politically correct thing to say. So papillary dermis is going to be superficial to the reticular dermis. And the dermis is going to have appendages like hair follicles and sebaceous glands, sweat glands, and nerve fibers. Rosie, do you want to take us through what skin does for us? What's the value for our bodies? Yeah. So there are a bunch of different functions of skin. Um, you may have heard that it is the largest organ because it does so many things for us. And it actually is 16% of your body weight. So it offers protection, um, with UV light and the mechanical protection, chemical, thermal, and infectious protection. It also has a metabolic function. So it does vitamin D synthesis. And then it also serves for thermal regulation, which becomes really important when we talk about burns. Awesome. All right. Using our knowledge that we have now about the different layers of skin. Let's talk a little bit about wound healing. Mm-hmm. A patient or just a human being has an injury to their skin that goes through, you know, possibly a deep injury, such as like a trauma. The initial stage is going to be the coagulation stage. So that's the first couple minutes to hours. This is going to be driven by platelets and involves fibrin growth factors to trigger the healing phase. And then we get into these three commonly tested stages of wound healing. The first stage is called the inflammatory stage. This will happen for the first couple of days. The second stage is the fibroproliferative day stage. This is like maybe day four-ish into the first month. And then we have maturation and remodeling. First Mm -hmm. stage being the inflammatory stage. So this is going to be driven by neutrophils and macrophages. First, we're going to get vasoconstriction and then vasodilatation and increased permeability. In here, we have chemotaxis, cell migration, and cellular response. The neutrophils in the first 24 to 48 hours are going to be really critical for inflammation and phagocytosis or phagocytosis. But what's most important is the macrophages in this stage. And this is going to be starting at about 48 hours after the injury to 96 hours after the injury. And this is going to be the most critical to wound healing and orchestrates the growth factors. The next stage of wound healing is the fibroproliferative stage. So again, this is like day four-ish to week three or four. This is going to be driven by macrophages, which are really critical and dominant early on in this stage. And then the fibroblasts and the fibroblasts are going to be really important here around day seven. These lead to high levels of collagen synthesis during the majority of this phase. And then you get, um, all kinds of collagen production. Um, this is where you're going to get your increased tensile strength and the increased tensile strength is going to start here around day day four to five. 
you'll get angiogenesis, which is the formation of new blood vessels, and then epithelialization. And then the last stage in wound healing is the maturation and remodeling stage. So this is one month to a year. This is going to be driven by myofibroblasts for wound contraction and the epithelial cells for reepithelialization. Here you'll get an equilibrium between collagen breakdown and synthesis until ultimately you'll get a net, um, a sort of a net neutral and no change um, in the net amount of collagen, but you will get collagen becoming more organized and stronger with type one collagen replacing um, type three and type four collagen. The problems here um, can also sort of, in my mind, at least start to lead to hypertrophic or keloid scarring. This is when you'll start to see those types of scars coming up for patients. Mm -hmm. You'll also have a decrease in the water content, vascularity, and overall cell population. And so this is going to be what represents edema resolution for your patients. All right. So we've talked a lot about the different stages of healing and kind of the cellular signaling that helps during those times. The other important thing is how skin actually physically heals um, and how that influences scars. So we'll talk uh, first about epithelialization. So this is the actual healing of the skin and how the skin cells make that happen. And you'll notice when Rosie's describing this, that some of these words are like common buzzwords. So some of the things that we're talking about here are just like a little dry, I would say, like these are things that sometimes we memorize for our exams and don't necessarily have in our working knowledge. But what we're going to try to do for y'all is just highlight some of like the key things that tend to be like commonly asked in the operating room or in the clinical setting mm -hmm. people like to discuss with you. Mm -hmm. Epithelialization, skin actually healing occurs because of a loss of contact inhibition. So when skin cells are in contact with each other, they are not stimulated to grow, but when they lose that contact, then they are. So the cells at the edge of the wound or appendages, whatever um, has been cut basically start to mobilize. Interesting. And, yeah. So the way this, that epithelium heals and epithelialization happens is a loss of contact inhibition. And then those cells mobilize towards the center. Yes. And, um, the cells that actually do this within your skin are the, um, intradermal appendages. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So what Rosie's talking about is this is like a commonly tested or maybe not tested, but commonly asked question in the operating room is, we just took a split thickness skin graft. Okay. We took away all the epidermis from that patient. Now we're left mm -hmm. with the dermis. How does that patient heal their skin graft donor site? Well, just like Rosie mentioned, they're going to re-epithelialize from either the side of the epidermis that's exposed or from the, the appendages that are in the dermis. So this is going to be like your hair follicles and things like that. And that's how you're going to re-epithelialize your donor site. Mm -hmm. So you've had loss of contact inhibition cells will mobilize from the center from the edges, I'm sorry, they then migrate towards the center until they reach other migrating cells. Cells that are left behind in the basal layer will start to multiply via mitosis. And then those new cells will differentiate into all the layers of the epidermis. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. I always think of the little hair follicles, like since they work so hard making the hair, then they also work hard to make more skin cells. I like that. <laughs> I'm very simple. <laughs> so the next thing we think about is contraction within the skin. So when we're talking about contraction, we want to think about the myofibroblasts. They come around around day three. So towards the end of that first stage of healing, um, and then they reach their peak at days 10 to 21. So within that second stage of healing is going to be the main time of the myofibroblasts. And then if you think about the myofibroblasts contracting, it's really easy to think about it in terms of like a skin graft. Cool. So, so let's, yeah. yeah, like let's talk about skin grafts. Okay. That. I think something that's maybe most important, and then we can talk a little bit about the contraction properties between split thickness and full thickness skin grafts is 
what is a full thickness? What is a split thickness? What are those words in reference to? And why would you use one verse together? Mm. So great question. Lots of aspects. So I guess first I like to think about split thickness because it's smaller and thinner, but you're taking a small layer of the epidermis and dermis. Okay. So both skin grafts have epidermis and the full versus the split is in reference to the amount of dermis that you take. Yes. That makes sense. So a full thickness skin graft, all the dermis and the epidermis Mm -hmm. split thickness skin graft, all the epidermis, but just a portion of the dermis. And that influences like what you'll see. So when you take a full thickness skin graft, you're going to see the layer below the dermis. Okay. And so when we look at the differences between these two and the reasons we may use one versus the other split thickness, skin grafts, leave the lower layer of your dermis down in the donor site. And so you're going to leave those appendages. Okay. So when I'm thinking about a patient and trying to understand why I might use a split thickness versus a full thickness, one major thing I'm going to think about is what's the available donor site. Mm -hmm. So if I have a patient that requires a lot of area to be skin grafted, then I'm probably going to lean towards a split thickness skin graft because they likely don't have enough enough skin for me to excise for a full thickness skin graft because you have to close that. Exactly. So often when we do full thickness skin grafts, we're doing like a pinch graft where you might take an area of skin that you had excess skin, you know, for pediatric patients, we'll commonly do this like from the groin crease. So we can close that in a single layer Mm -hmm. or from the belly. Um, Often for reconstruction of the face, we might take full thickness skin grafts from the neck or from the supraclavicular area, Mm -hmm. the area behind the ear. And then we close that in a a single, you know, a single incision, whereas a split thickness skin graft is going to leave a wound behind that that patient has to heal. So that might be a reason for like a pediatric patient to try to avoid doing a skin graft in a split thickness manner, if you could. Other things that can influence our decision of a full versus a split thickness skin graft would be um, you know, where you're placing that skin graft. Mm -hmm. So if you're skin grafting somebody's face or a very visible area, it might be nice to use a full thickness skin graft Mm -hmm. because it's going to be a little bit more consistent with how their skin looks. You could Mm -hmm. find an area that has a similar skin tone, um, consistency. Whereas if you're skin grafting a large area, like we mentioned, you're more likely to want to use a split thickness skin graft. Mm -hmm. Full thickness skin grafts also will contract the least like overall. And so they're really good for facial um, reconstruction or anything that's visible. Interesting. You can think of split thick. When people think of split thickness skin grafts, they often think of like this, this classic look, which is like cobblestoning. And that's when split thickness skin grafts are meshed. And you do that so that you use the skin graft you took to actually cover way more area. Okay. So you just brought up a couple points that I want to make sure um, people understand. Mm-hmm. So Rosie just mentioned that full thickness skin grafts contract less overall than split thickness skin grafts. So there is something called primary contraction and something called secondary contraction. When we think about skin grafts, primary contraction is how much that, that graft contracts when you initially take it off the patient. So I just harvested a skin graft. How big is it now compared to how much tissue was, you know, what the size of that skin was when it was on the patient. Secondary contraction is what happens over time as that wound heals. So split thickness skin grafts have the least amount of primary contraction. So they retain their size the most at the time you took them. However, they have much more secondary contraction. So as they heal, they get smaller. Full thickness skin grafts alternatively have the highest primary contraction. So when you harvest them, they'll all of a sudden shrink as soon as you take them off 
the patient. Mm-hmm. However, they won't can go. <laughs> exactly. However, they won't shrink over time as much as they heal. The reason all of this happens is there is something called elastin that is in dermis and more elastin means more primary contracture contraction and less secondary contraction. And since a full thickness skin graft has all of the dermis, it has more elastin. A split thickness skin graft has less dermis, therefore less elastin. And that's what explains why we see those things. So Rosie mentioned like there might be an area that we don't want to contract post-op. Maybe this is around the eye. And so for that reason, we'd use a full thickness skin graft. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, there might be an area that we do want to get smaller, a wound on someone's extremity that maybe they want to be smaller. And that might be a value of a Mm -hmm. split thickness skin graft. Maybe even it would get so small that in a, in, you know, sort of a staged fashion or later on, we could actually go back and excise that tissue and close it primarily. Sure. So these are like a lot of the things that we're thinking about when we're making a decision about skin grafting. Another thing is what's the wound bed? Where are you putting this on? Mm -hmm. You know, the metabolic requirements of a split thickness skin graft are going to be much smaller than a full thickness. So that could be another reason why you might pick a split skin Mm -hmm. graft. Okay. You mentioned meshing. Mm. Um, can you explain like why we mesh skin grafts? Yeah. So with split thickness skin grafts, you have the ability to run them through this little, um, little mesher, I guess is the only thing I can call it. And it pokes holes in the skin graft and allows it to expand to an area that is, you know, up to three or four times the size of the initial graft that you took. You know, we can do this because what we took has the ability to fill in those little holes once we put it on the recipient area. Awesome. So meshing does two things. One, it allows us to increase the size of the skin graft that we took. So this could be great to minimize the size of the donor site and maximize the amount of skin. Mm-hmm. Meshing does something else. And, th- and we can talk about that now. So meshing allows us to essentially create holes in the skin graft. We do a similar thing often with full thickness skin grafts where we, we pie crushed them as a term that we use to also maybe use a 15 blade or another knife to create holes in that graft. And we do this so that way fluid doesn't build up mm-hmm. between the graft and the underlying tissue. And so we're going to table that for right now. We're going to talk in just a moment about why skin grafts fail, but first let's talk about how skin grafts heal. So there are three key words that any student going into the OR for skin grafts just needs to have memorized. <laughs> memorized. <laughs> Ambibition, inosculation, and neovascularization. Yeah. Just rattle them off. Just rattle as soon as you off. walk in the door, just say those three words. And, and then you're, you're good. Then you're, you don't good. even have to be asked about it. Just, just imbibition. Boit them out. Timeouts yeah. over. Okay. I'm ready. Imbibition. Inosculation. <laughs> neovascularization. Okay. So what does this mean? <laughs> this is how a skin grafts heal. A skin grafts heals. So imbibition or plasmic imbibition is the first, like up to 48 hours. This is when your graft is going to absorb nutrients from the bed beneath it. You know that the Spanish word for drinking mm. to drink is beber. Yes. Imbibition, the bear. This is what you think in your head as a student. Okay. Next stage is called inosculation. This is like maybe day three to five. This is when you're going to have connection of the recipient and the donor vessels in the graft and the recipient bed. And I kind of thought there was another word for kissing as it relates to this. First you drink, then you kiss. There is the the Latin word osclatus. I don't speak Latin. (laughs) 
but that is the part of the root word of inosculation. And this is how we remember this. Okay. Last process is neovascularization. So this is going to be the growth of new blood vessels into the tissue. Okay. So then why does a skin graft fail? So one major reason is you're going to prevent that process of the skin graft healing. And that could be either because you had some fluid that built up in between the skin graft and the wound bed, such as a hematoma, maybe a seroma, but probably more likely a hematoma in the acute setting and also shearing forces. So that's when your skin graft is, is moving against the wound bed. So the way we prevent those two things is by placing a bolster on top of a skin graft that has been pie crusted or has had been meshed. Mm -hmm. So these are kind of the things that you were talking about before. And this is one of the values of meshing. It allows an opportunity for that fluid to be evacuated from underneath. Other reasons a skin graft fails is infection. So this is when there is bacteria that's greater than 10 to the fifth per square centimeter of tissue, or if your wound bed, you know, wasn't viable, it wasn't healthy enough. It didn't have Mm -hmm. enough vascular, you know, sort of a well-perfused area to support the skin graft. Mm -hmm. Okay. We talked about how this donor site heals. It's going to epithelialize from the edges of the, of the donor site and from the skin appendages and the residual dermis. Honestly, if y'all can remember those things, like Mm -hmm. you're going to do so well in your skin graft cases. Mm -hmm. All right. Rosie, can we just talk a little bit about keloids and hypertrophic scarring? Yeah. So we went through wound healing with your normal wound healing. So let's talk a little bit about abnormal wound healing, um, and scarring. So a the difference between a keloid and a hypertrophic scar uh, is often tested. Um, and it's, I feel like it's pretty simple as long as you remember that a keloid will expand outside of its original borders and a hypertrophic scar will not. Okay. So when I have a patient come to me in clinic and they have a really raised, maybe it's erythematous, but it's in a straight line along with the surgical incision. And they told me that they think this is a keloid. That's in fact, often a hypertrophic scar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And often patients come to us who've keloided say from having their ears pierced, or it could be from surgery or mm-hmm. from trauma or something like that. Okay. What are we tested on about the differences between collagen and the patterns of collagen and keloid and hypertrophic scarring? Mm-hmm. So I, when I think about the difference between these two types of scars in terms of the way they look, it also helps me remember the kinds of collagen and the orientation of those fibers, the fibers, the collagen fibers in hypertrophic scars tend to be parallel to the surface of the scar, like parallel to that direction. So I just think like a bunch of sticks lined up next to each other. And that's why the scar is still linear. That's why the scar is just a little bit bigger. Um, in keloids, they are all disoriented. They're crossing different ways. And so that's, you can think of it extending outside of the original borders, taking on funny shapes. Um, we also have differences in the types of collagen. Well, let's just back up. From yeah. One Normal skin has type one and type three collagen. There's, Mm -hmm. there's several types of collagen. Normal skin has a four to one ratio of type one to type three collagen. Keloids have a three to one ratio of type one to type three, whereas hypertrophic scars have a two to one ratio. So we always say that a hypertrophic scar has more type three collagen than keloids. So both keloids and hypertrophic scars have more type three collagen than a normal skin does. All right. When we're excising scars, this is also something that we talk a little bit about. Excising and treating a hypertrophic scar is relatively successful. Often these are going to be areas of tension or flexor surfaces. These are generally a lot easier to treat than keloids and don't recur as frequently. Whereas with a keloid, 
The key here is multimodal therapy. You are likely going to do a combination of re-excision, radiation, and or injection with something like a steroid or 5-FU or interferon or cryotherapy. Often, most commonly, I have seen people excise and then also inject with steroids. Mm -hmm. I've also seen people excise and send that patient for radiation. Mm -hmm. These are harder to treat. Ever since you decided you're going into plastic surgery, people now have decided that you just know everything about closing skin, which is true. And you know everything about scarring. So you're going to get questions from your friends, from your family, and from your patients about how are you minimizing scarring? So I like to think of this in two different categories. The first thing is technical things at the time of surgery. So you all have probably heard these phrases. We are trying to create a tension-free closure. We are trying to evert our wound edges, okay? These are ways to ensure that your, that your scar is gonna heal as sort of as best it can. You wanna minimize inflammation at the, at, the su- at the incision. So that could be maybe through using permanent sutures as opposed to sutures that are gonna dissolve and create some inflammation. You want to make sure there's no infection because of your tension-free closure, you're minimizing the risk of dehiscence and you're ensuring that there's good perfusion of that tissue and then maybe no tension post-op. So you're like limiting activity or you're splinting the patient in certain scenarios. I talked about using a permanent suture. One of the downsides of using a permanent suture though, could be when you get those sort of epithelialized tracks around that permanent suture. Mm -hmm. Train tracks. That train tracks. Exactly. So I mean, on the face, often we will take sutures out maybe like at five to seven days, Mm -hmm. whereas in some other high tension areas, we might actually just be trading the presence of those train track sutures for better strength of our, of our repair. Right. So you can leave this, those permanent sutures in a little bit longer in places that maybe aren't as cosmetic and, but also might be like some high tension areas, might be high tension, shoulder, Mm -hmm. knee, something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then after surgery please add in if you can think of other things, but I kind of focus on three things with patients when I'm talking to them about how to, how to optimize their scar. The first thing that people can do is something called scar massage. This is really just what it sounds. It's taking your fingers and kind of massaging the scar. You could do that with some lotion or some ointment, um, or you could just do it with your finger. Typically we're talking about starting that maybe about three weeks after surgery. So that incision is well healed. And we're not maybe massaging a immature incision that you could then lead to a dehiscence. The second most important thing is sunscreen or keeping it out of the sun. So especially when patients have incisions or scars, you know, or wounds on their faces is to cover it with sunscreen and, you know, put a hat on or cover it with a piece of clothing, keep it out of the sun for that first year during that stage of remodeling. And then the last thing that I would recommend to patients is often using things with silicone. We have more data that suggests that these products with silicone based like silicone strips um, or tapes um, can help make a difference for scarring by keeping that area moist. And there's a variety of different products out in the market. That is a common question for all aspiring plastic <laughs> surgeons for yeah, every are. single person you meet. Awesome. Well, we really covered a lot. We mm-hmm. talked about the difference between primary, secondary, and delayed primary wound healing. We talked about different layers of the skin, of the epidermis, the dermis, and then the subdermal plexus, what the skin do- does for us. We talked about the three main stages of wound healing, inflammatory, fibroproliferative, and then maturation or remodeling stage. We talked about how epithelialization happens, how um, skin and wounds contract. We talked about the difference and indications for split versus full thickness skin grafting. We talked about how a skin grafts he- skin graft heals. 
ambition and osculation, neovascularization. <laughs> you have passed your sub eye. <laughs> we talked about why skin grafts fail, how donor sites heal. And then we talked about keloids, hypertrophic scarring, and just general good practices to minimize scarring. Yeah. I think that was a great review. Awesome. Uh, well, thanks so much for listening to our discussion today. Hopefully it's helpful to you all. Um, don't forget that this episode and others are available on our website, theresidentreview.com. And we invite you all to visit the website for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. So please rate, review, subscribe, The Resident Review to wherever you get your podcasts and share these episodes with your friends so you can all pass your sub-eyes. Thanks, Rosie. Thank you. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.